Welcome to the Living Faith Missionary Church Podcast. You're about to listen to a message from Pastor Chris Starn, Senior Pastor at Living Faith in Yoder, Indiana. It is our prayer that this message is an encouragement and a blessing to your life. We have been uh, in the book of Ephesians, and if you have your Bibles, I would ask you to open to Ephesians 6. We are in the last chapter. We're going to cover uh, three verses today, 10 through 12. I, I love Ephesians, and, and I especially love this part of it. Ephesians 6 is one of, my, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, in the New Testament at least. But I, there are some things in here we need to talk about going forward. There's some things we need to know, some things we need to understand, um, and I want to make sure we, we, we get through this uh, in, in a way where we, we leave knowing that uh, we, we are wiser for what, we, what we've read in Scripture. So I want to begin, uh, actually, with um, reading verses 10 through 12 of Ephesians 6. Paul says, finally... Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Father, we praise you for your word. Many times, Lord, I look at these words and I think they are words of warning for where we are or where we're going and where we've been. And Lord, I just pray that you would open our minds to your word. May it enrich us greatly, prepare us for battle, the battles that lie ahead of us. We pray this in your name. Amen. And I've got to ask the question, do you believe the Bible? Do you believe what it says in Scripture? And I don't, don't just mean the stuff that we like. I don't just mean the stuff that makes us feel good. I'm talking about all of it. You know, we believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, and we hold it as the truth. The Bible is God's Word, and it is true. But I have to ask, do you really believe it? And I think we're coming to a point in, in, the, in, the, in the life of this world where that's going to be tested. I was talking this morning, I've been, and I've been talking to some other people, I've been reading a book called Live Not by the Lies. And, and the author goes back and talks to people who lived under communism. And one of the things that kept them strong is family and faith. And they're warning us that, that they, they see this totalitarianism coming into our country. And you don't think it will happen. I'm afraid it will. Constitution doesn't matter anymore. Freedoms do not matter anymore. So we must be prepared. We must be prepared for the battle that's ahead of us. And if we read our Bible, we're going to find that there are some things in there that are just a little bit odd. And we're going to cover those over the next few weeks. I think it's important that we understand the whole Bible. I think it's also important that we understand that there are that when the writers when Paul and Peter and John and and Luke when they wrote the the New Testament they did not just write it in a vacuum they had writings that they knew about they had yes they had the Septuagint which is the Greek Old Testament yes they had a lot of the Hebrew scriptures but there were other books that they had okay they I want to tell you they're not inspired. They're not gospel. They are just what kind of formed, helped them form their worldview. We today are, are affected by our world. Our worldview affects how we react to things. So we need to understand and we need to see, you know, here's this weird thing in Scripture. Where, why, are, why are we getting this? Why is Paul writing that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood? And how is it possible... That he, you know, he may be writing it for himself because obviously he is struggling with things. But it's also for today. Tim said it. We're in a spiritual war here. How is it possible? There must be some common thread that's running through this. So understand, I'm going to be talking about some strange things, and that's okay. 
And I'm going to talk about some books that aren't in the Bible. That's okay. I'm going to qualify them. You're going to understand where. And I've done. I've been. Believe me, this is probably the longest. I spent more time writing this sermon than any others because I've been doing this, preparing for this for two and a half years, studying. Reading the Old Testament, reading the old writings, reading paper after paper after paper on this, making sure that I understand it. And you're going to have questions, that's fine. I'm, I'm okay with questions. But there are some pretty strange things that are hard to believe. Or we may have read them and we just never even realized that's what it said. Because it's, the Bi- by the way, the Bible was not written in English. Jesus did not have the King James Version. That's not the official version that he had. It was written in Hebrew and Greek. And translators over time have translated it. And they've all done a pretty good job, I must say. But every day we learn more because every day... Did you guys know that just a couple weeks ago, parts of the Dead Sea Scrolls were reinterpreted again? They they opened up, finally looked at them. We're still going through the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are pre-Jesus. Gives us an idea of what they thought how they thought, how the second temple people, which is the time of Christ, how, what their mindset was, and what the Jews believed. So we're learning new things every day. So we, we got to, we hold true, hold to the truths of scripture, and they're being validated by the extra biblical writings. Not all of them, you got to be careful. See, we believe that Jesus is God, and that he came to earth, he died on a cross, and he rose from the grave. We read in the stories of Exodus where God rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt by miracles like parting the Red Sea. And most of us today would say that we believe these things. We believe it really happened. I mean, what's the point of saying you're a Christian if you don't believe that Jesus is God? If you don't believe that Jesus was God, you're not a Christian. But there are some other details, details that many pastors and churches kind of avoid talking about. And they're a little more difficult to swallow, a little more difficult to understand. And what they usually do, they usually pertain to spiritual matters. The Bible teaches that there exists this immaterial world, this spiritual reality that's not seen by the human eyes. We see in places in Scripture where we have interaction between the spiritual world and our world. We see places in, places in Scripture where people's eyes are opened and they see the spiritual world. We know it exists. The physical reality, which some people even doubt that the physical reality exists. Matrix, you see the movie Matrix, that's what it's all about. The physical is not real. Oh, and by the way, if, you, if you've watched the Matrix movies, there's actually more Matrix that says that the Matrix isn't even real. They don't want to admit that reality is reality, that I'm real. But talk about a spiritual world, they say there's no way, I don't understand that, how could there be? But when we talk about spiritual things, things get a little sketchy. But I want to be honest with you, the Bible is clear that the spiritual realm exists. And that there is battles going on. And we are in a battle with some of those beings in the spiritual world. But there are many misunderstandings about the unseen realm. Just a side note, if you look in your bulletin, I have a list of books that I've read all of them. And that you can get and you can find out a lot more details than I'm going to be able to share with you. Um. So it's not, believe me, it's not just me saying this. It's not just one author saying this. What has been, this is stuff that the theologians talk amongst themselves about, but never gets down to the churches because seminaries don't teach it. Because they're more worried about getting you into the church and how to be a pastor. But these are actually what I, I would suggest getting at least, the, if you're going to get one of these books, get Supernatural. It's a very basic idea of what is what is being what was in the idea of the original writers of the new testament what was their worldview what is a jewish worldview and then you can branch out to the other books so my my goal going forward over the next few weeks is to give us at least this rudimentary idea this rudimentary glimpse 
into how things work in the spirit realm. I mean, if, if we're going to go to battle with somebody, we need to know how the enemy fights, right? We need to know what his schemes are, what their schemes are. And it's a there, it's not a him, by the way. What their schemes are. How do, they, how do we do battle? How do we fight the spiritual battle that we're in? And what amazing thing that as I've studied this, I've realized that we're doing it and we don't even realize it. We're going to do today. We're going to do something today at the end of the service that's a spiritual battle. Taking communion is part of that spiritual battle. And I always say it's thumbing our nose up at the spiritual evil, spiritual evil forces saying, see what Jesus did? See how he defeated you? We're safe. We're secure. You have no power here. That's the spiritual battle that we're going to do. But I want us to get us at least a, a basic idea of what happens in the spiritual world. We're going we're gonna to take scripture from the Bible. We're going to examine it in its original context, in its original language. That's important. We'll also be exploring what is called extra-biblical material that the writers of the New Testament would have used to form their worldview. I am not saying any of those are inspired. I'm just telling you that this is where they get the ideas, and I'll show you how they did that. I'm going to try not to nerd out on you too much. I sometimes can be a biblical theological nerd because I love these these terms and I can I can I can say the Hebrew words and you know I can't speak Hebrew but I know how to say the words. But but I feel it's important that we understand God's word. His whole word, not just what we like, not just the good stories. You know, I love the story of David, and I love the story of the Exodus. And the, but, I mean, have I really, have you ever read Lamentations? <laughs> have you ever just really read it? Have you ever lamented? That's what we're going to do Thursday night. We're going to read parts of Lamentations. Have you ever read Leviticus and stayed awake and not been grossed out by all the different ways to kill things? There's a reason we have it, and we need to read the whole word. But I think if we do this, we're gonna, it's gonna, we're gonna understand God's word. We're gonna understand our place in His story, and we're gonna understand our future and what the picture that we should have of the seen and the unseen world. Now, as we're going through these messages, I want you to know you can ask me questions, not here during the sermon. I would prefer not to. But if you have to, that's fine. Uh, Late after the service, if you want to ask me some questions. Uh, you can go to the church website. Now you can put the slide up. I think I got it in there. Or Sam, is it in there that has the website? It should be right after it, unless it didn't update it. That's okay. Don't worry about it. You go to the church website, www.livingfaithmc.info. There is, yeah, that's actually not it, but that's okay. I actually have a slide that has the phone number on it, too. You, you don't have the updated one. Um, there's a little block there that says, ask the pastor. Click on that. I'll get a message. You ask your question. There's also a phone number that you can call. And I can't remember what it is. It's two. No, 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 no. I'm looking for the phone number. There's phone number. It's, it's um. One moment. I set I set it up last night. It, they didn't they get, didn't get downloaded. But let me just go in here. It is the phone number you can text. You can send me a text message to 222-7194. 222-7194. You send that text message. I'll get the text message. I'll answer your question. I may even do it in a video, or I'll, and I will definitely text you back and let you know. 222-7194. So please do that, um, or like I say, you can write down a piece of paper and give it to me afterwards, and I'll get back to you. I want to begin most of this by, by introducing you to what's called God's counsel. This is in numerous places in Scripture. I missed it all the time. I didn't really realize what it was. And I want to begin with a story. I want to begin with the story of Ahab. Ahab was the king of the northern kingdom, the northern ter- territory, it was called Israel. This is after the time of Solomon. The, co- the, the country split. You have, you, have, um, you have Judah and Benjamin in the south, and you have the other ten tribes in the north. And they had split. Ahab and his wife Jezebel were not exactly the best people in the world. They were not faithful. 
Ahab and and Jezebel were idolatrous. And idolatry was running rampant. They were worshiping other gods, especially they were worshiping Baal. Baal. Um, you, you guys know a, a name for Satan is Beelzebub. That's where it comes from. Beelzebub. It's interesting to follow the words and where they, they actually come from. So Baal was being worshipped. And this was, a very, this was a very bad god to worship. Um, child sacrifice was common. It's common today. We board our children. It's the same thing. But we, our God is convenience. But they were, it was very bad. And this was the time uh, after David and Solomon. It split. And so now we have this king in the south called Jehoshaphat. In Israel, it was Ahab and Jezebel. And they were on pretty good terms. And Jehoshaphat comes north, and he goes to Ahab, and he's sitting there with him, and and. And, and Ahab says, starts complaining about this place called Ramoth Gilead. Ramoth Gilead is this town over in Aram. It's this town that actually belonged to the Israelites. It was actually a town that was one of the uh, sanctuary cities. That if you killed somebody accidentally, you can run to that, and the family couldn't hunt you down and kill you to get revenge. Sanctuary city. Read about it in the book of Exodus to understand it, but that was a common practice. So the, 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 he was complaining because the, the, the Syria, basically, had taken it and had not given it back. And Ahab suggested maybe they should join forces together and they should go and they should attack and maybe together the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom could conquer and take the city back. Now, Jehoshaphat wasn't just going to do it without some advisement, so he decided, he said, well, can't we, can we ask God if we should do this? Well, the problem was that in the northern kingdom, there wasn't really very many prophets of Yahweh. And I'm going to try, as I say these, when I talk about this, I'm going to say Yahweh. Yahweh is God's divine name. Um, if you see uh, YH, YHWH, they don't put the, they don't put the vowels in because it's a, an abomination for a Jew to say Yahweh, <laughs> to say it and to write it. So it's his divine name. So Yahweh, there's not, there's only one actual prophet of Yahweh. All the other prophets are prophets of Baal. So Ahab calls his prophets of Baal and say, should we go to battle and will we win? Well, they start cutting themselves and doing all the crazy things they do. And what ultimately happens, they say, well, yes, king, you should go because you're going to win. The problem was that they were only telling Ahab what he wanted to hear. And Jehoshaphat says, well, don't you have a prophet of God? And he's like, yeah, Ahab, yeah, there's this one guy. His name is Micaiah. He never says anything good about me. I don't know about you, but if there's someone who never says anything good about me, he's probably probably the correct person to be advising you. So Jehoshaphat convinces Ahab to call him, and Micaiah comes, and this is what he says. And we're in, we're in 1 Kings 22. And Micaiah has a vision. It says, and Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? You notice here that God had destined, had predetermined that Ahab was going to die at Ramoth Gilead. But he asked his counsel, who will entice him? One said one thing, and another said another. So they're discussing it. The heavenly host, the beings that are in God's council, are discussing how they are going to entice Ahab to go to war. And a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? Now this is interesting because God knows everything, but he includes his counsel in these decisions. And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouths of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Notice, God decided what was going to happen ultimately, did not decide how, allowed his counsel to decide, and then said, yes, that's gonna, that'll work. Go, do it. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these, your prophets, 
and the Lord has declared disaster for you. And Ahab says, well, there you go. See, he never says anything good about me. Let's go to war. They go to war. Ahab is killed. Exactly what Micaiah said was going to happen. The exact same thing that the, that the Lord said would occur. But God didn't. God had made the decision. God is sovereign. He knows all. He made the decision that Ahab was going to die. But he didn't decide how. He knew how. It's you get confusing. We'll talk more about this as we go along. But he allowed his counsel to help make that decision. The Bible wants us to believe that God meets with a group of spirits, his counsel, and they decide how something is going to happen on earth. Oh, and by that way, that's exactly what happens, whatever they decide. Now, I want you to understand, this is not the only place we see this. This is not just some crazy, you know, Micaiah wasn't just making this up. This is what God told him. God doesn't lie. This is what happened in the spirit realm. God has a council. We see it. We see it in Revelation. What do you think John sees when he, st- when, he gets to, when he sees the vision of heaven? He sees God's council. We see it in other places. These verses in 1 Kings are not the only place it happens. We'll explore some of these verses, other verses in a moment. But we must understand that God, the members of God's heavenly host or his council are not just some insignificant or peripheral thing that are unrelated to any other part of the Bible. This is important that we understand that God has a council. He has a council. They're an integral part of the story of creation, of history, and our story as humans. In fact, they play a central role in all of that. But we must be careful not to read past and ignore these parts of Scripture because they seem odd. If part of Scripture seems odd, it's probably very important. And we need to explore it more. We need to understand what were the writers thinking when they wrote this. Why did they put it in here? Why did God allow it to stay? What did the the, the first century church think about this? These are things we have to think about. And these are things that theologians have been discussing for decades. We don't hear about it because we don't read their papers. Believe me, you do not want to read the papers that a lot of theologians have put out because they are boring. I've read them. They're boring. But they just talk amongst themselves. But they, these, these, word, these verses contain more important details about the unseen realm and its interaction with our realm. You know, we today are seem to be fascinated. The world seems to be fascinated with the supernatural world. We have books. TV shows, movies that kind of fuel our desire to know something about the unknown. You know, you got the Avenger movies. You know, you have Harry Potter, you have Superman, you have the Twilight Saga, you have Fringe, which is on TV, you have Supernatural, which is on TV, and they all, you know, the, all, everybody knows about the X Files. And they're all very popular. Why? Why are they so popular? Because I want to tell you, people are drawn to things that are unknown. And you want to know why? Because God made it that way. If we go to Ecclesiastes 3.11, it says he has made everything beautiful in its time. Get that? He has made everything beautiful in its time. You are beautiful in your time. Don't let anybody tell you any different. But that's not the point of what I'm going to make here. But It says also he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. He has, God has put etern- this idea of eternity, this idea of the unseen realm where things are eternal. He's put that in our heart, and, but we can't fully understand it. So we get glimpses of it and we, we can piece them together and get a somewhat understanding. But you know what? Even that's not enough because God is much greater than that. His ways, are not, his ways are not our ways. It's way beyond anything we can fully understand. But we can understand some of it. We know at our core that there's something beyond this world. When when Paul wrote to the Romans, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Creation itself bears witness that there's a God, and so there's also this realm beyond our own. The stories that Hollywood gives us about the unknown seem to capture our imagination so much more than what the Bible does. And you know what? I I don't think it has anything to do with the special effects. 
You know, if they just take the Bible and, and they make it like the Avenger movie. No, that, that's not the problem. Because what the church has taught over time has been, well, kind of boring, to be honest with you. It's not that the story is boring. It's that we don't, you know, we don't, we don't want to tell you everything because we tell you everything, you might understand it. Or you might take it in the wrong direction. Instead of allowing you to say, this is what it says, this is what it means, this is what the original language was, let the Holy Spirit do his work. Sometimes the church has even emasculated the unseen supernatural world, rendering it powerless. I hear stories of people coming into a church and the pastors will say, well, we're in Genesis 6 today, but we're just going to skip this part because it's too weird. Really? We preach all of Scripture. All of it. I may say I don't understand some of it, but that's okay. So what we know, we think we know may not be true. There's a lot that we've been taught and imagined about the actual unseen realm that isn't true. Uh, By the way, angels do not have wings. Did you know that? Now, you say, well, what about the cherubim? Cherubim are never described as angels. They are a separate creature. Angels don't have wings. Now, what does that matter? It doesn't really. But you must understand that we're taught these things, and we don't actually look into the details of it. In fact, angels are always described in human form, and the cherubim are described in animal form. They're a separate creature. Demons do not have horns and tails. If you really want to find it interesting, you can go back, you can study where that all comes from. And by the way, they're not trying to cause us to sin because we do that pretty good on our own. Now, there are some creatures in the heavenly realms who do influence us and try to get us to sin, who tempt us. Satan tempts us. But demons aren't going around trying to tempt us. There's not an angel on this shoulder and a demon on this one talking to me. Okay? Doesn't happen. Makes for great Hollywood. And while Scripture does describe demon possession in in just awful ways, and awful meaning it's terrible when somebody is demon-possessed, intelligent evil in the unseen realm has much more sinister plans in place than to go around and make us sock puppets. Demon possession, we're going to talk about demons. I'm trying to decide if I'm going to do a whole sermon series on the evil and a whole sermon series, a sermon day on evil and the whole sermon day on angels. I might do that. But understand that there are demons. They do possess people, but there are rules. There are things, there's reasons why, and we'll, we'll get into that as we go along. But they are pretty sinister, and there's a bigger plan in place. We must understand that the gods, and I use when I say gods, I mean little g gods. These are not God. We'll, I'll talk about that in a second. But gods are real. Remember in 1 Kings, the vision that Micaiah had. The Bible says that God has a task force of divine beings who carry out his decisions. It looks, and, and if we look at a couple of other places, we see it also. If we go to Psalm 89, 5 through 7, it says, Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones. An awesome, an awesome above all who are around him. In Daniel, Daniel sees his vision, says a stream of fire. Daniel 7.10, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands serve him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. But the most significant verse is Psalm 82.1. And this is what it says. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Did you catch that? This is a very important verse because you have to understand grammar, and you've got to understand Hebrew grammar to see this. First of all, God has taken his place in the divine council, in the midst, which means more than one. So it's not just one, it's in the midst. It's God, the Godhead, the Trinity, in the midst of the divine council, which are many. In the midst of the what? Of the gods. And that is the actual word that we've translated, gods. He holds judgment. 
we must understand it in its context and its original language. So I'm going to nerd out here a little bit so we can understand this. We've got to look at what the word God is in the original Hebrew. What did we translate from that? And understand that the, the text I'm using is the ESV, which comes from the Masoretic text. Well, I'm, actually, it comes from, it comes from the, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls. There's different places that Scripture comes from. We have different copies of it. This comes from the Dead Sea, which is older than what was used for the King James Version. But this word that's used, and in many places in Scripture, it's, trans, trans, um, it's, it's transcribed as God's, or God is Elohim. Now, when I say God, what do you think of? You think of, oh, I think of God the Father, I think of Almighty, we think of Jesus, we think of the Trinity, we think of the Holy Spirit. But you must understand that when the Hebrews, when the Hebrew people look at Elohim, they don't attach things to it. See, we attach things to it. When I say president, we have certain things, you know, we may think of Joe Biden, we may think of Donald Trump, we may think of George Washington. We attach our, but, but the Hebrew people don't do that. Elohim, all it means is spirit being. But every place in scripture that you see Elohim, it says God. You got to understand that. It's not, we, we, gotta, we can't place things, we can't attach to this word meanings that aren't there. We think of it as a singular tense, as the name of God the Father, but as much, it's much wider than that. In fact, in Scripture, a lot of times you'll see Yahweh, because that's who they're talking about. They're talking about God the Father. It, but in Elohim describes inhabitants of the unseen realm. And it's used in reference to God himself in Genesis 1.1. It's used in reference to demons in Deuteronomy 23.17. And it's actually used in a, a reference to a human dead person in the afterlife in 1 Samuel. When Saul goes to the witch of Endor and, and asks ask to, to ask her to bring Samuel up, she says, I see an Elohim coming. So we've got to be careful that we understand what the original words are. But when they say, when it says in um, Psalm 82, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the Elohim, he holds judgment. It's not saying that God is in the midst of himself. That's, that's grammatically incorrect. A, a Jew would say, there's no way. That's not what it says. It says, God is in the midst of other beings, other spirit beings, holding counsel, passing judgment. So Elohim does not refer to any sp specific ability that only Yahweh has. The Bible distinguishes between God the Father and all the other, quote, gods, little g, in other ways, but never uses the word Elohim to do so. So we must understand that. Psalm 29.1 says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. And the word here for Lord is Yahweh, his divine name. This verse tells that the benai Elohim, which is the sons of God, to give Yahweh glory. Psalm 95.3, For the Lord, Yahweh, is the great God, El, and the great King above all gods, Elohim. I mean, we've read this. We, we believe this. We just didn't quite understand what, the, what it was, what it all meant. There is only one Yahweh. Understand that. There is only, there's no one like our God. There is only one almighty creator God. I'm not talking about all gods being equal. Because they're not. Because the Benai Elohim, the sons of God, were created beings just like you and me. I want you to understand that. I'm not, I'm, I'm not pantheistic. But I also understand, I have to understand the original grammar. I've got to understand the original words. And what did the original writers think? Bible is clear that Yahweh, God the Father, Creator God, has no equal. The Elohim, the sons of God, are like our God, but they are spiritual beings who are real. They're not, they're not exactly like God. They're His images. They're the image of God, just like you and I are. The Bible identifies them as spirits, so we know that they're not just idols made of stone, 
or wood, stone idols, don't work for God in the heavenly council. And yes, people in the ancient world would worship these stone idols. We call it idolatry. And what they believed, they did not believe that that idol was a god. What they believed, if you study the ancient religions, you'll see what they believed was that if they did the right rituals, that the god that they were worshiping would indwell the stone. It would come down. It was a way of calling down that god into the stone statue and into the wooden statue. It was convincing the Elohim to inhabit and take up residence in the idol. We're not to do that. We don't call God and tell him what to do. We don't. But they did. They tried to control the Elohim. The Elohim in Psalm 82 are called the sons of the Most High. We also see this in the book of Job. If we go to Job 1.6... Remember I said that the, the council was integral to the formation, the creation of the world? Look what Job 1.6 says. It says, Now therefore, now there was a day when the sons of God, the Benai Elohim, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan was a, came among them. We'll talk about Satan later. But Satan's among them. The Benai Elohim, the sons of God, come. And then in verse Job 38.7, we find that they were present at creation. When the morning stars, which is the angels, what we think of angels, we'll talk about that too, sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. When God created everything, the sons of God were there. The Elohim were there. And what did they do? They shouted for joy at his creation. And since God created them, he calls them his sons. You and I are sons and daughters of God if we believe in Christ. Why? Because who created us? God did. The Father, Yahweh, created us. He calls them his sons. He uses family language. But God is more than a father. He's a king. He has dominion. He reigns. And and reigning is a family business. God is Lord of his council, and his sons hold the next highest rank because of their relationship with God But something happened, which we'll discuss in a later message, because some of them became disloyal. Now, you might be thinking that the council is just full of angels, but the term used for angels in Hebrew is malach, and all that means is messenger. Do you know that an angel, the word angel, is not a description of somebody? It's their job. It's a messenger. That's what that word translates in Hebrew. They're messengers. They're messengers for God. That's their job description. It's not a proper name. All Understand that all malak, all angels are Elohim, but not all Elohim are angels. Not everybody is a messenger of God. Not, all, not every Elohim, not every spiritual being is a, is a messenger of God. It's a special task that he gives them. We see Gabriel. Gabriel is a messenger. At that time, he is holding that job position of Malak. Michael has been a Malak. Those are the two we know of in biblical definitions, as far as by name. In Daniel, we see the sons of God are given another name. They're called watchers. Nebuchadnezzar is, you know the story, Nebuchadnezzar is punished, and he, he begins to eat like a bull, like a cow. He starts eating grass all the time. This is what it says. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers in Daniel 4.17. The decision by the word of the holy ones to the end of the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. It says the sentence has been handed down by the watchers. The watchers are the Elohim in God's counsel. They're called watchers because they're forever watchful over the affairs of humanity. They don't sleep. In some instances, God decrees what will take place, and he gives the council free to determine how it's going to happen. And if we go to some of the extra-biblical writings from the first century, we'll find out that they believe that the watchers are recording everything we do. There are multiple books we find in Scripture, not just the book of life. And everything we do is being recorded because they're watching us. You think your mom and dad watches you. They have eyes behind their head. Imagine Spiritual beings watching us and recording what happens. So, 
Every time I do these sermons, each, each, each week, I want to come down to a point of why does this matter? Because you may be thinking, who cares? You know, who cares what's going on up there? Well, I, I obviously said the first time we need to know who we're fighting. And we'll, we'll talk about, we're going to talk about rebellion next week. It's Mother's Day. What a perfect time to talk about rebellion, right? But why does this matter? First, there's a lot going on in Scripture than we might think. If we do a little more digging and dig a little deeper into the original language and the original worldview, it's going to become even more important as we look at what the worldview of the New Testament writers was like. Next week, you'll see that we're going to talk about the book of Enoch. You're like, oh, I've never heard of that one. Or you might say, yeah, I've heard of that. Did you know that both Peter and Jude referenced the book of Enoch? Now, why? Why? Not because they thought it was God's word, but because it formed their worldview. And if it's in Scripture, it's important. So I think we need to look at it a little bit. I've read it. It's one of the books that's on your list. That's a pretty decent one. As with anything, you've got to be careful. That's why I've read all those books first, to make sure there's nothing in there that shouldn't be in there. But it's going to be important as we look at the First Testament, or the New Testament and the, and the first century church and what their writers, what their worldview, worldview was like. It'll, it'll bring, and the thing is, if we do this, I, and when I first started studying this, you know, I've read Scripture all my life. I've been a Christian since I was 12. And I've read the Bible multiple times. But when I looked at this and said, oh, there's a council? Oh, there are other spiritual beings? Oh, this is what they do? This... My eyes were opened, and now everything has a richer context than it did before. I don't know, I can't completely understand it and explain it, but I can tell you that my reading of Scripture is more vibrant now that I understand where they get some of the things that they write in the New Testament. It's going to bring Scripture to light, and it's going to answer many questions, especially if you start studying about angels and demons and unseen realm and all of that. Second, how God deals with his heavenly family, the council, is how he deals with us. He deals with us the same way he deals with his, his, his unseen realm family, his spiritual family, his earthly family. He's going to deal with us the same way. Think about this way. Why does God have a council? Why? He doesn't need one. Does God need, God is, God's all powerful. He knows everything. He can make every decision and it would be perfect. Why does he need a council? He doesn't. So why does he do it? Because he wants to. Why did he, was God lonely when he created humanity and created the earth? Was he just lonely? No. He was in perfect relationship with the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're all there. Why did he create us? Because he wanted to. He has a council because he wants one. He doesn't need one. He chose to create the Elohim, the spiritual being, and he chose to involve them in his creation. And in the same way, he doesn't need us. He chose to do so. He could proclaim everything. You know, he could proclaim that everybody in this room is going to be a believer. He can say, you, you now, boom, now you know everything about Scripture. Instantly. Back to the matrix. Download. He could download to our brains everything we need to know, and we would believe, and we'd be no problem. But why does he include us? Why does he tell us to go and make disciples of all nations? He wants us to be part of it. He loves us. He wants to. He wants us to love him because we love him, not because we have to and we're forced to. Parents, don't you want your kids to love you just because they love you? Not because you buy them everything or are bigger than they are. You want your kids to love you because they love you. And believe me, we don't love our kids just because they're perfect little angels, do we? We love them in spite of the fact that they're not perfect little angels. God does the same thing with us. He treats us the same way. Thirdly, God could just predetermine that all the events that occur are just going to turn out the way he wants but he doesn't do that. He knows everything can and will happen, and he knows everything that won't happen. But God allows free will to work in 
our lives and to work out for his glory and for his goodwill. See, you and I are part of this big plan. This is the one thing it really showed me is we're all part of this huge plan that's going on. And all this stuff, all this garbage that's happening in the world, that's nothing compared to what's going on in the unseen realm. That's the plan from Genesis to Revelation. That's the plan we're in. All this is peripheral. So it gives us a better idea of what's going on in this world. It doesn't mean we'd ignore it. It means that we're all in this battle. We're all fighting a spiritual battle. Our battle is not against flesh and bone. It's against the spiritual forces of evil in the unseen realms. But we need to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And to put on the full armor of God to fight the battle. We're part of the plan to draw all things under Christ's dominion. From the beginning, we were created to rule the earth with him. From the very beginning. But things went awry. Things went wrong from the start. And God knew it was going to happen. But he still allowed it. We will go back to the garden next week. And we're going to look at not just the fall of the garden, but also the rebellion of the sons of God. Do you know there are three rebellions? We're going to cover two of them next week. We'll cover the third one in two weeks. There were three rebellions. Now, think about this. If your child keeps rebelling against you, you get pretty tired of it, don't you? But you still love them, right? Yeah. We're going to, people rebel against God all the time, but he still loves us. And his plan is still going to work out. And yes, there are going to be some bends in the road. But you know what? If we keep our eyes firmly planted on God and we follow the plan he has laid out for us, if we walk in the good works that he has prepared in advance for us to walk in, we'll make it through this. And the beauty is he doesn't want us to do it by ourselves. He wants us to do it together as a community. As a church. That's why community is so important. We're in this together. We're in this fight together. Let's put on our armor and let's get into the battle. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. Lord, you know my consternation about this sermon and these sermons coming up. And I don't think I can do it justice. But you've given me words that at least get us started. I'm asking you to take them. Keep us in your word. Lord, nothing, nothing I've said today is outside of your word. Help us to, to want to, to find out more. Give us a desire, a hunger, and a thirst for you. Help us to be ready for battle, Lord. Just because we, we're not uh, fully suited up doesn't mean the battle's not already raging around us. Help us to be, have our eyes firmly planted on you as we fight this spiritual battle that we're in. May we do honor to you as you draw everything under Christ, ultimately for him to rule on earth and us to rule at his side. We praise you. We praise you that you created us for this time. You make everything beautiful in its time. You see us and you see, man, what a creation. It was very good. Even in the midst of our troubles and our rebellions, you still love us and provided a way for us to mend our relationship with you, to come back home as the prodigal son and daughter. We praise you, Father. We just pray all this in your holy name. Amen. Go in peace. Oh, wait a minute. Communion. I tell you. See, that's part of that spiritual battle that goes on. But understand that when, when Jesus was here, he was fighting this battle. He was, he was, and it's interesting as you, as you read that. Uh, and one of the books, if you read Reversing Herman, or Hermon, is interesting. God is, Jesus lays down the gauntlet. Right before he goes to Jerusalem. 
and that night with his disciples, they're celebrating, they're celebrating God's salvation of the Israelites from Egypt. And he's correlating it to his salvation of all of them from the evil one. The power. The power and the simple. So that night he was with his disciples in the upper room. And as he took the bread, he blessed it. And when they bless it, they're they're blessing God. And he says, this bread is my body. That's being given for you. See, this, this is part of the spiritual warfare that we're in. And this is part of the battle right here, what we're doing right now. We are saying to Satan, look, Jesus freely gave his body for us. And he says, take it and eat it. And as part of the Passover ritual, they had four glasses of wine, and one of them was the cup of redemption. And that's the cup that Jesus takes. And he says, this cup, it represents my blood that's being poured out, being poured out for the forgiveness of sins. He's, he's, you see, we're telling Satan, when we, when we drink this, when we celebrate this, Communion, the first of every month, we're sitting there saying, you see, saying, Jesus poured out the blood for me. And he gave it to his disciples, and they drank it. And what we just did, we just now did, is spiritual battle. Because we're reminding Satan... You thought you won, but Christ rose from the grave. He won. You're defeated. We're still battling you. The the war has been won. The battles are still raging. We've just done spiritual warfare. May we be blessed. May we be blessed by the warfare that we do. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you for joining Living Faith on our YouTube channel. My prayer is that this message today has encouraged you and strengthened your faith in Jesus Christ. We would love to connect with you, so please subscribe to our channel and hit the bell so that you get updated when we add a new message. Also, please leave any comments you might have in the comments section. We would love you to join us live for our service on Sunday mornings at 10 o'clock. We hope you have a great day today. God bless.